Today I'll be reading from Exodus 14, 10 through 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there, were, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What is holding you back from the life that God created you to live? Are you being held captive by doubts, fears, or sins? Like the Israelites, we can get comfortable in captivity. Staying with the familiar can seem easier than moving forward in faith. The redemptive story of the Exodus reminds us that God wants to lead us out of captivity and that we can trust God as we journey to freedom. We are continuing in our series on Exodus, and so much of this redemptive story of God delivering his people out of Egyptian captivity and bringing them to a promised future, the promised land, relates to our lives. There are so many parallels, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to study and to look at some of the lessons from the Old Testament because God is still God. Sometimes we think, well, there's the Old Testament God, and then there's the New Testament God. But God is God. And we have much to learn about God. We have much to learn about ourselves by looking at these stories in Scripture. And so we are in Exodus 13 this morning. Let me ask you, have you ever gone down a path or made a decision, and then you kind of got down that path a little bit and decided, "Uh uh-oh, this is the wrong way? You change your mind, you want to turn around, you want to uh, do something different. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in, or it's a job that you're trying, or it's a big life decision, and you have charged ahead, but then something has happened. Things didn't go like you thought, or there was disappointment, or some expectation violation, and you want to turn around, but you can't, because it just doesn't work. So what do you do? Well, you could do what this guy did. Watch this. Yeah. Anybody need an extra dose of anxiety this morning? I have so many questions when I watch this video. (laughs) That's persistence, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes turning around is difficult, isn't it? (laughs) But you know, that's what the Israelites wanted to do. God's covenant people, the ones he was taking care of, the ones he was leading, the ones that he provided for and protected. When the road got a little bit narrow and it got scary, they wanted to turn around even if it meant turning around, would be extremely difficult. They wanted to go back. But let me ask you, where was it they wanted to go back to? Do you know? Do you remember? It was Egypt. What was happening in Egypt? They were being oppressed. They were being treated cruelly by Pharaoh. But they said, we would rather go back than face what is happening now. You see, sometimes in life, the pain that we know seems better than the pain that we fear. Have you found that to be true? 
Sometimes because we're familiar, sometimes because it's at least some level of comfort that we have with it, the pain that we understand and know seems better than the unknown, the unknown pain that we anticipate. Fear has a way of crippling our faith, doesn't it? Classic psychology says when you are threatened by something, when you are afraid, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because fear does good things sometimes, but when you are afraid, you will respond in one of three ways. You will fight, you will flee, or you will freeze. So which one is the ideal approach when you are threatened? Well, it depends on the situation, right? It depends on the circumstances. A while back, we had a neighbor who had honeybees, and every once in a while, some of those bees would come over into our backyard, and, and I never knew what to do. You know, do you run? Do you stand still? Someone said, you stand still. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound right. And I Googled it. And it said, when you come across bees or bees try to swarm or attack you, it said, run. And then it also said, and if you can hold your breath, that's good because they respond to smell and breath. And I'm thinking, you want me to run and hold my breath? It's going to be one or the other. I can't do both. So the situation sort of determines our response, doesn't it? Well, for the Israelites, when things got difficult, they wanted to turn around. They wanted to flee. They wanted to get out of there. They wanted to go back. That's where their heart was. Their heart wasn't with God. And God had a different response in mind for them. God didn't want them to flee. He had a response for them that was rooted in deep trust and faithfulness to him, to the covenant relationship that they were in with God. And so let me ask you, what do you do when the, difficult, when the journey gets difficult? What do you do when life gets difficult? This sermon series we're calling Journey to Freedom. We're all on this journey. God is bringing us out of captivity from sin and death and really from anything that hinders our walk with Christ and he's bringing us into this abundant eternal life, this life of freedom in Christ and through Christ. But you know and I know that sometimes life gets difficult. Sometimes that journey gets difficult. How do you respond? Do you just throw up your hands and say, I've had enough? Do you fight? Do you turn around and run? Do you freeze in fear? What do you do? The Israelites' journey to freedom we see in Exodus 13 becomes very difficult. You might say the road gets a little scary. There were the 10 plagues that God used to deliver his people out of Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh relents and he lets the people go so they pack up their things and they hit the road. God has brought them this far and he has no intention of leaving them. He is going to be with them. He is going to guide them. But God doesn't just take his Google Maps app and put in Canaan there and say, okay, there's the shortest route, let's take that one. God has a different plan. So look at Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert, by the desert road, toward the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. 
the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now, the text says they were ready for battle, but I think God knew that if they faced any kind of opposition, they would take off. They may have appeared ready for battle, but in their minds and in their hearts, they weren't really ready for battle. And God does something interesting here. He strategically puts them in a place, right? He doesn't take the shortest route. He gets them hemmed in by the desert on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. From human logic, they have nowhere to go. Isn't it amazing sometimes how God works out things in our lives not like we expect, sometimes not even the way we want? That's part of trusting God, right? That's part of faith. We pray for God to do this or do that or take this away or put this job and, you know, and then God steps in and does something different. My guess is that none of the Israelites expected to take this route out of Egypt. But God is orchestrating all of this. He has a different plan. And God stays with them. And God leads them on this journey. The text says that he is represented by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. In verse 22, listen to this. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Do you understand how reassuring that would be? The Israelites didn't have to ask some of the questions that we ask sometimes. You know those questions. God, are you still with us? God, are you still in control? God, are you asleep? Are you away? How long will I suffer, God? Where are you? Is this still part of your plan? All of those questions that we ask out of our desperation. The Israelites didn't have to ask those questions. All they had to do was look up and see this great pillar of cloud during the day. And then at night, it's not like God took the nights off. He was still there, this pillar of fire. God's presence was among them. What reassurance that must have given them. You would think that would fortify anyone's faith. That would cause anyone to say, you know what, I can relax because God, he's got this. He's in control. He's leading it. Meanwhile, Pharaoh is in Egypt. And he looks around and what does he see? Well, it's not what he sees, it's what he doesn't see. He doesn't see those Israelite slaves and servants. Those people who are making him money. He misses them, or at least he misses the work that they were providing this cheap labor force that he got by exploiting those with less power, with less privilege. And so he changes his mind. Chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told <clears throat> that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. If our world's history has taught us anything. If our nation's history has taught us anything, it is that the oppression and subjugation of other people can be easily justified and rationalized, even sometimes using scripture if there is great economic gain at stake. What a terrible evil injustice. It was then, it is now. And Pharaoh would not let his slaves go without a fight. The ten mighty plagues that he saw with his own eyes, that his people experienced, 
that spoke to the sovereignty of God, those things would not be enough to keep him from defying God himself. So what does Pharaoh do? He gets 600 of his fastest chariots. He gets his horsemen. He gets his armies. He gets his officers. He gets other chariots. And they give chase. They start this epic search and recover mission. He wants the Israelite people back. And because God has strategically placed them, the Israelites, in a location where basically they are trapped, it doesn't take long for Pharaoh to catch up. The Israelites look up and what do they see? Desert, sea, enemy. Chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to this desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. (laughs) My goodness, the whining, the complaining. All they can do is see what they used to have, which wasn't good at all. All they can do is say, we told you so, God. All they can do is question God's authority, his leadership, his guidance, and his provision. We had it better off in Egypt. We told you we shouldn't left. They go on and on, whining and complaining. What do they want to do when the road gets narrow and scary? They want to do a 20-point turn and get out of there. Had they forgotten the pillar of cloud? Had they forgotten the pillar of fire? Had they forgotten the plagues? And don't you know earlier, I know this happened. Because I've traveled with enough church groups, I know this happened. Don't you know earlier, when God was leading the people out, and they made the turn at the desert, rather than going through what would later be called the Philistine country, they went around it? Don't you know someone in the group said, God, (laughs) there's a better way. Don't you know someone said, Moses, you're going the wrong way. You took a wrong turn there. Let me tell you how to do this. I know someone did. And now the naysayers are back at it again. But now everyone is joining in. And they're just whining and complaining against God. They want to go back. Remember what I said earlier? Sometimes the pain we know seems better than the pain we fear. To us reading this, we think, what were they thinking? Isn't it clear? Stick with God. Especially when you compare the two things. Stick with God or go back to what you had, that oppression, that cruel treatment, that injustice. But see, there's something inside all of us that says the familiar is better. Going back to the familiar seems surprisingly easier than stepping forward into the unknown. Because back there, even if it was bad, we had some level of control over our environment really that's what it comes down to we want control and maybe we can't control everything and maybe we are under someone else's control but there is something we can control and if there is something we can control we think that's better than having nothing to control than stepping out into the unknown into the uncertainty but isn't that what faithfulness is isn't that what faith is trusting God 
surrender to God, stepping into the unknown. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I like a phrase that the New Living Translation uses. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up your own way. You've got to give up your own way. You've got to yield your control to me, God says. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you really want to be a disciple, then you've got to park your self-will at the door. And you've got to give up the familiar. You've got to give up control and follow me in faith. You see, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is not about getting control of your life. It is about surrendering your life and letting God have control. But we all know surrender is difficult, isn't it? Because surrender means I will be vulnerable. Yielding means I lose power, I lose control. It makes me in a place, it puts me in a place where I could be taken advantage of. We don't like that. Because there's a voice inside of us that says, take over. Step in. Manage the outcomes. Manipulate the situation. Fight for yourself. Defend what's yours. Do what you need to do to come out on top. There's those voices in our head. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to give all that up. You've got to give up your own way and go the path of Jesus. For our Israelites in their story, that's how they felt. There was this great dilemma, this big choice to make. They felt trapped. Again, the desert, the sea, the enemy closing in. What do they do? I want you to notice God's instructions to them. Notice what God says to them. Now, if that had been you or me, we might have said, I've had it with you all. You're so hard-headed. Why can't you just do what I ask you to do? Notice what God says. Exodus 14, verse 13, through his agent Moses. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Did you get the message? The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's the message I want you to get today. That's the verse I want you to underline. Maybe even commit to memory this week. Let me read it again. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let's take a minute and just break down some of those directives from God. First of all, he says what? Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. That is a constant command or directive throughout Scripture. In fact, people have counted and they say, that is the most common command in all of Scripture. Fear not. Take courage. Do not be afraid. And so often in Scripture, when there is that command, it is followed by God doing something big, this epic intervention, this grand intrusion into the world to bring about his will and his purpose. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is being born into the world. The word is becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. The shepherds are out. An angel appears to the shepherds. They're afraid. What does the angel say? 
do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Today in Bethlehem, a Savior is born. God says, don't be afraid. And then he does something, something big to reassure us, to rescue us. You see, for the Israelites, they couldn't see the possibilities. They could only see the problems. There was this huge body of water in front of them and these enemies behind them. And God says, don't be afraid. I'm about to do something big. And you know what he does. <laughs> he pulls back the waters of the Red Sea so his people can cross. What else does he say? He says, stand firm. Don't fight. Don't take up arms and fight. Don't flee. And certainly don't freeze in fear. Stand firm. Hold your ground. And that's not a military command. That is more of a posture of surrender. They're, think, they're thinking, God, we are in the crosshairs of our enemy. And God says, stay right there. Stand firm. Don't move. Oh, God, you don't understand. <laughs> this isn't good for us. We're afraid. We know how this is going to play out. And God is saying, stand firm. Stay right there. I got this. And then what else does he say? Be still. If only you just be still. Literally, that phrase in the text means be quiet. Hold your tongue. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Stop critiquing. Stop judging. That's not your job. I remember one time we were in a store at the checkout and they had a big sign there that said, no whining zone. <laughs> I thought, man, I need a sign like that. No whining zone. And I was just glad that we were there to buy something instead of return something because I knew that wouldn't go well. God is telling his people, stop, stop criticizing, critiquing, questioning. Just be quiet for a moment. Just be still. Close your mouth, open your eyes because you're about to see something huge. Maybe that's God's message for you today. To simply be still to stop talking start listening and looking let me try to illustrate it this way uh, like many of you I've done my fair share of flying on airplanes I've, I've heard the science on what makes it work in fact in college I took a class principles of flight I needed a science credit it was there I thought it'd be interesting so I took the class even passed the written test to be a pilot now I never got in a simulator I never got in a plane but I am a book pilot, okay? For whatever that's worth. Made an A in the class, even. So I understand a little bit about aerodynamics and lift and velocity and all of that, but there's still something inside of me that thinks about this, I don't know, 250-ton piece of metal hurling through space that makes me a little nervous. Anybody else get a little nervous when you fly? So imagine you're on a plane. And let's say you're seated next to the window, close to the wing. Things are going great. And all of a sudden, there's some turbulence. I'm like, okay, well, it's not great, but okay. But then it gets worse. You get a little nervous. You look out the window, and you can see the engines under the wing, and you see that one seems to have some kind of problem. It's sputtering, or something's happening, and there's more turbulence. 
Now, what do you do? What do you do? Well, you know, I get up out of my seat and I start marching to the front to the cockpit, start knocking on the door because clearly they need help. Clearly, they do not have this under control. And the flight attendant says, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? You need to go sit down. No, no, you, know, you, you probably don't know. I took principles of flight in college. <laughs> Made an A, so I am here to render my help to these people in need. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? It is absurd. What do I need to do? I need to go back to my seat, <laughs> tighten my seatbelt, get out the barf bag, <laughs> and start praying. That's my job. And let the pilot pilot the plane. He or she literally has the controls at their fingertips. They are in control. I have nothing to offer. My job is to sit there and trust that they will get us there safely. You see the connection? So often we question God. So often we critique God. So often we think God needs our help. We knock on heaven's door. God, I'm here. Because, <laughs> you know, I know a lot of scripture. And God, I've done a lot of good. So I'm here to help you. And I wonder if God's not just saying, please just go sit down. <laughs> just be still. Just shh, be still. Now, don't, don't be mistaken. Surrender and trust and releasing control does not mean we are passive onlookers. That certainly wasn't the case for Israel. God wanted them to be active participants in this journey to freedom. He wants us to be sojourners with him, making much of him, pointing people to him, continually bearing witness to him because he is in control, because he is providing and protecting. We have a job. Our job is not to pilot the plane. You see, generally, the more control we seek, the less faith we show. Sometimes we just need to pause in the presence of God and rest in the assurance of his promises. Sometimes we just need to take a deep breath. Everything around us is running and moving and speeding by, and we just need to take a deep breath and inhale the Spirit of God. And open our eyes, close our mouth, open our eyes and see God and see what he's up to and surrender to him. Sabbath was built into the rhythm of the lives of Israel so that they could do just that, so that they could pause in the presence of God and rest in his promises so that they wouldn't forget that God was still in front of them. God was still leading them. Now, we don't necessarily observe Sabbath, certainly not by law. We probably should observe some type of Sabbath. But the truth is, we need to pause. We need to stand firm and be still and know that God will fight for us. It's so hard because in our world today, we want to be in control. We value working and running and moving and producing and controlling outcomes, even in the church, don't we, church? Even in the church, we do this. We think if we do more, we are more. That's not always the case. We read passages like Philippians 2.12, 
where it says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and we, we misread it a little bit and we think we are working for our salvation with fear and trembling, that we can do enough and be enough and be active enough, but we do it as, as, with this fear that God's going to zap us if we don't do enough. If that's my reading of that verse, if, if my reading of any verse directly violates the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then probably I have a flawed reading of that verse. On your journey with God right now, maybe his instruction to you is pretty simple. Maybe his instruction to you is, be still and know that I am God. (laughs) And if we know that he is God, what does that mean? That means we aren't God. That he is in control. That we yield to him. That we need to reset our focus that we need to recalibrate our faith, that we need to rest in his good promises. And what would Israel see if they would simply do that? If they would simply close their mouths, open their eyes, what would they see? They would see the Lord fighting for them. But he wouldn't use the weapons that we might choose. He wouldn't use swords and arrows and chariots. What would he use? An outstretched arm, a mighty east wind, a wall of water. To deliver his people. God's battle plan isn't always what we expect. Just look at the cross. How did God defeat sin and death? Through sacrifice. Through sacrifice, the most unexpected way. I'm here to tell you today that God will fight for you. God will fight for you. That's what happened for Israel. When God parted the sea, the Israelites walked through on dry ground. Pharaoh and the Egyptians went after them. And what happened? God was, under, God was in control, and he carried out his plan to deliver his people. And I want you to notice in verse 25 of chapter 14, God jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Their enemy could see what so many of them struggled to accept that God was fighting for them. So, how do you feel knowing the battle belongs to the Lord? We sing that song, we just sang it a few minutes ago. We sing that song, but do we live that way? Do we live in such a way that says, I know you got this, God? Whatever battle I am facing, whatever is is making the road scary, I want to turn around, but God, I know you got this. The battle belongs to you. And I'm not just a passive participant or an onlooker. I am an active participant with you, God, but I yield to you, to your wisdom, to your sovereignty. This morning, maybe God is simply saying to you, do not be afraid. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. If we can encourage you some way today, let us do that. Let us pray for you. If you need to confess sin, if you need to ask for help, let us help you. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ. You're ready to surrender, to yield your life 
and say, God, I want you to be in control. Maybe you're ready to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, brought up out of that water, dying to self, surrendering self, but being brought up with a new life and a new purpose and a new hope. We would love to celebrate with you today. In just a minute, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me in the hallway. You can exit out of these doors, make your way there. They would love to encourage you, pray for you, just be there for you. Or you can come down to the front, and we as a church family will surround you with love and support. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. I need you more.